1 Corinthians 14 and starting at verse 26. What shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not be afraid of speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. We live in days where freedom from all constraint is seen as the greatest good, and where structure, order, and the necessary constraints that come with that are seen as the greatest evil, seen as a form of oppression uh, to have structure and constraints in perhaps any way. And one of the ongoing challenges that we face as Christians and as churches, and it's one that goes right through the ages, it comes up again and again in 1 Corinthians, is not to be shaped by the world, but by the word. We are to be biblical Christians, thoroughly shaped by the word of God. And our passage this evening, in that way, is a particular challenge to us, because it teaches us that our meetings in order that there might be edification, building up of one another, then order is necessary. Structure is good. And that is a very countercultural message. Some of the other things we're going to look at in what Paul teaches about the roles of men and women in verses 34 and 35, again, in our wider culture, would not be received well. And so perhaps as we come particularly to this passage it's important that we remember uh, what Paul says in verses 36 to 38. And unusually, we're going to start there. Because in light of all that we might know in our culture, and perhaps we've absorbed some of that um, as the Lord's people, the danger is that as we hear God's word, we would forget just how significant the scriptures are. If you look at verses 36 to 38, Paul is really, really clear. He's clear because he knows the things he's going to say might be a struggle for the Corinthians, 
And God knows that these words might be a struggle for us as well. And so look down at verse 36 to 38. He says, Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Note that. And if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. So it's almost as if Paul is anticipating the possible objection, the possible response to these things that we might say, Paul, well, Paul, thank you for sharing your opinion about our services and the things you've been saying. Uh, We'll take your feedback on board and we'll file it in the file named B1N. Any parents use that one at home? Code word B1N in the box in the corner of the room. Well, we mustn't respond like that, must we? We mustn't respond because verse 37 tells us this is God's command. And if we have the Holy Spirit and are guided by the Holy Spirit, we must recognize this. And God's command is good. It is here to help us. It is here to help others. And we should not ignore it. And so as we come to this passage, let's have that attitude. This is God's word. It is good for us. Let's receive it with that spirit. So, what are we doing this evening? Well, this evening we're finishing a section as we've worked through 1 Corinthians in chapter 14 where Paul is addressing the corporate meetings of the church. And he's teaching us in the whole chapter how we can edify, that is to build each other up when we meet together as God's people. And you might say Paul has two big concerns in chapter 14. His two big thoughts are, and we saw last week in the first part of the chapter, what you say matters. What you say matters. It needs to be understandable. It needs to be intelligible because what we contribute, verses 1 to 25, should be understandable so that we might build others up. So what we say matters. But then as we come to verses 26 to 40, we might characterize here what Paul is saying as how you contribute matters. So the content of what it is in verses 1 to 25, and then in verses 26 to 40, How we contribute, how we engage together in worship matters. And the big summary here is that our contributions should be fitting and should be orderly. So let's come to this passage. We're going to see two main things Paul is saying. And then as we come to the end, we're going to see, God willing, as we have time, three particular implications for us. So first of all, let's see the first thing Paul is saying. And this is in verses 26 to 33, where he says, Our meetings together should reflect God's ordered peace. Our meetings should reflect God's ordered peace. Now, we get another insight into what's going on in a church in Corinth as they meet together as the Lord's people. And the problem in Corinth is, well, their meetings are chaotic. They're chaotic because as we look at verse 26, we see that as they come together as God's people, they all have lots to share and things to contribute. But the problem is they're not doing so in an orderly way. I think it's important to say that verse 26 is not an exhaustive list of what should happen when God's people come together to meet with one another and meet with him. It's illustrative of some of the things that may happen. And if you look at the things that Paul mentions there in verse 26, it's, meeting some, it's missing some key things that we know are vital that we would do. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 talks to us about the Lord's Supper as being very important. There's no reference to that there talks to us about singing and other elsewhere in the scriptures. And again, there's no reference to that there. So it's not exhaustive, it's illustrative. But what's going on is there's chaos as they come together. The Corinthians are not lacking in keenness 
to contribute. But Paul's command at the end of verse 26, everything must be done so that church may be built up. And then his application in verses 27 to 31 tell us that the problem is that there is disorder in how people are contributing. And the result is that no one is being built up. Everyone wants to speak. No one wants to listen. And perhaps that's a particular reflection of the pride that was going on in the Corinthians' hearts that we've seen again and again as we've worked through the book. And just as Paul did in the first part of the chapter, in zooming in on the particular issues of prophecy and tongues to illustrate his wider point about understandable worship, he does the same thing here. He zooms in on prophecy and tongues to illustrate what he means by ordered worship. So in verses 27 and 28, he applies his principle of order to tongues, and in verses 29 to 32, he applies it to prophecy. And Paul's principles are that contributions should be measured. He says if there are uh, tongues, there should be two or three speaking these foreign languages. If there are prophets, there should be two or three bringing these revelations. So there are measured contributions. Not everyone shares everything that they would like to share. There is structure to the contributions. They should speak one at a time, verse 27. Everyone should speak in order, uh, in turn, verse 31. And then the contributions not only should be measured and structured, they should be edifying. So there should be interpretation, so we can understand what is said in those foreign languages. And there should be edification, weighing up whether someone is really a true prophet. So Paul is saying that as they come together, worship should have order. Now that does not mean that we are so constrained that we can never adjust from the planned order of service. Essentially, if we look at verse 30, uh, Paul envisages a situation where the Lord moves by his Spirit and being sensitive to God's leading means that things change. The first speaker stops. Somebody else needs to have bring, is going to bring this revelation. But even then, notice, there is order to what happens because the first person stops speaking. And then somebody else speaks. So Paul is saying worship should have order. And Paul, as he often does, anticipates a possible objection that people might have to what he's saying. Someone might say, but the Spirit is moving in me in such a way that I have to speak. I just have to share it. The Holy Spirit has laid it on my heart. What does Paul say? Verse 32. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. This is crucial to see that spiritual gifts are under the control of those to whom they have been given. So you can wait in sharing what God has given you to say. And that is a big contrast, isn't it, to how we see some, uh, some speaking about the use of gifts that might be outside of their control. But Paul's big point here is that order aids edification. Order helps building each other up. Just like understandable contributions helps that, so does good order. And he applies that to the specifics of tongue speaking and prophecy. But then he introduces another reason why order matters. Look at verse 33. He says, For, the, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. What's he saying here? He's saying that to have disorder in worship 
is contrary to the character of God. Because God is a God of order and peace. Now that's very significant. It's a new idea, but it's very important because he's telling us here that our worship together as God's people should reflect the character of the God whom we worship. So, if we are really be worshipping God, that worship will be peaceful and that worship will be orderly because we will reflect in our conduct the God whom we revere in our worship. Now, I don't know about you, but hearing those verses again in verses 26 uh, through to 33, we notice just how prescriptive Paul is being about worship. I counted in the original, sorry, in the English, there are at least 11 uses of the word must and should, indicating a command. And if you go and look at the Greek, there are even more commands there in those verses. Paul is being very prescriptive prescriptive about the order that should be happening in worship. And if we find that hard, we need to remember that if we reject this order, our problem is not with Paul, it is with God's command. Verse 37. Friends, one of the repeated appeals in Corinthians is this. Will we obey and receive God's word, or will we absorb the ideas of our world and our culture and allow that to shape us? And this is a situation where that comes right up to us, doesn't it? Because our world is saying, freedom is good. You don't need structure. You don't need order. That's constraint. That's a bad thing. What is God's word saying to us here? God's word is saying, so that we might be helped and edified and built up. We need that structure so that we might help one another. In fact, the world is selling us a lie when it says that freedom is an ultimate good. Because the reality is, there is no freedom without structure. I mean, just think about it. When you drive the car and the traffic lights aren't working, what happens? It's chaos, isn't it? You know, when they put in the temporary traffic lights and the batteries run out or the system breaks down, doesn't it drive you crazy that they all stop working? And then suddenly, what was a fairly flowing place in the town or the city suddenly becomes a huge traffic jam. Why? Because part of that structure brings freedom. It brings freedom to travel. So that constraint actually allows us to function. And similarly, order gives freedom for edifying, building up contributions. Paul's big point. Now, before we move on, and I said we'd come to this in mentioning it last week, we need to zone in on verse 29. Look down at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Now, I mentioned we come to this because this verse is a key verse for those who want to argue that prophecy continues to function in the church today, but it's a different kind of prophecy to that which we see in the Old Testament. Now, now people who want to argue for this have a a high view of Scripture, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord's, but they want to allow for the possibility of prophets today in the church who, who don't speak like the prophets of old, such that every word they speak is thus says the Lord and fully infallible, 
But rather, they say, based on verse 29, there's a new kind, a different kind of New Testament prophecy where prophets, uh, prophecies, they say, sorry, needs to be weighed and tested. And uh, they say that uh, because this verse, they would say, indicates that a prophet can speak and their words can sometimes be right and true and from the Lord and sometimes can be wrong. And that needs to be weighed and tested. Now, because that's such a common view, I want to spend a few minutes just thinking about it together. I think it's important that we do that because this is one of the main passages uh, that people go to to make that case. I want to say there are two problems with that view, that there is a different kind of New Testament prophecy. The first is it does not fit with the office of prophet as established there in the Scriptures. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God establishes the office of a prophet, office of a prophet, the key criteria for a prophet is that God will put his word into the mouth of the prophets, and everything the prophet says when they say, thus says the Lord, will be infallible, true prophecy. You can hear it as God's word every time the prophet says, thus says the Lord. And so it's interesting, as you go back to Deuteronomy 18, the test of a true prophet is whether the prophet, everything the prophet has said as coming from God is true. And if just one time they say something and it doesn't come about, Deuteronomy 18 says they're not a prophet because everything has to be infallible. Now, that is the office as established in the Scriptures. And it is a huge change to suggest that the function of a prophet changes there in the New Testament. Such that sometimes they'll speak God's word and sometimes it will be wrong. If if God was signaling that to us and intending that, we would expect to find very clear teaching on this. And it's not there, friends, in the New Testament. In fact, Prophets always bring infallible revelation. As Rich was reading this passage again tonight, the Lord showed me a verse here that I'd not seen in working it through. If you look down at verse 30, he says, And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So, how is Paul describing prophecy there in verse 30? First, uh, it's the fourth word. What does he say it is? A revelation. Someone else has got a revelation. They've got a prophecy. And Paul's describing that word they're going to bring as a revelation. That is the prophetic word. Always infallible revelation from God. So it doesn't fit with the office of the prophets. But also, it doesn't fit with the Greek of 1 Corinthians 14 verse 29. Now look at verse 29. Literally, the Greek in verse 29 says this. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully. Now what is missing in the Greek that our translators have put in because they favor one way of reading this passage is what is said. It's not there in the original. And that's really significant. Because the big question is, what is being weighed in verse 29? Is it the word of the prophet, some would say, or is it whether a prophet is a true prophet? It's the person 
It's not that some of their words can be true and some of their words can be false. It's whether they are a true prophet or they are a false prophet. So the most natural way to read verse 29 is not to say it's a judging of whether a prophet is speaking a true word of prophecy and sometimes a false word of prophecy. What's actually going on is Paul is saying you have to weigh whether someone really is a prophet, whether they are truly given this gift of infallible speech from the living God. That's the most natural way to translate that. And O. Palmer Robertson, who in this book, The Final Word, has a lot of helpful content on this, makes the point that the whole argument for this new kind of New Testament prophecy hangs on what he calls an exegetical string. It's the prophet themselves who is being weighed. And given the abundance of prophecy there in the New Testament church, in fulfilling what God had said would happen, as we see going on, it makes sense that you would have to judge whether someone really is a prophet. So so what's being said here is it's a judging of the prophetic office of an individual, not their individual prophecies, whether they are true or false. Now, we spent some time there. Um, Maybe that's been um, a little stretching for us to see, and it might have felt a bit tricky. So take a breath, and now we're going to step into verse 34 and 35. So here we're going to see, we've seen first of all, that that a meeting should reflect God's ordered peace. And now secondly, we're going to see the roles of men and women should reflect God's creation design. Our second point here in verses 34 and verse 35. So men and women should serve in corporate meetings according to God's designed difference. Now let's read verse 34 and verse 35 again. Paul says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, some people try and explain away these verses as a specific problem in Corinth with nothing for us to learn today. Others want to try and suggest that they're not even originally part of the text of the Greek as it's given. And both are wrong. Both are wrong. We need to take these words, these verses seriously and see the principle that Paul is applying. Now the statement there that women should remain silent in the churches cannot indicate a universal silence because... We're all called to sing in our gatherings, aren't we? That's something that the scripture calls us to do. Plus, as we saw a couple of months back, as we worked through chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians and verse 5, Paul thus assumes that women are to pray and prophesy in meetings because he says, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 5, that everyone who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And what we saw when James took us through that is that prophesying today is equivalent to reading scripture. So how should the women be silent? Well, there are two possibilities here. One looks to what's happening before, in the verses before verse 34, and the other looks forward to what's going on in verse 35, the verse afterwards. So let's think about those together. The first thing that might be in view is judging of prophecies. 
uh, judging of profits, sorry. So verse 20, 29 is outlining this process where uh, there is a judgment of whether a prophet is a true prophet. And Paul is saying the ladies should not be involved in that because that judgment of a prophet is a leadership role within the church and so only for men. That would be looking before. And then the other possibility is looking afterwards. And there, if you look at verse 35, that would seem to suggest that what has been going on is that the ladies are asking questions disruptively or defiantly during the meetings. And so Paul says that they should be submissive to male leadership, verse 34, and instead ask their questions of their husbands at home, verse 35. Now, when we looked at this as elders, we were clear that the judging of prophecy is certainly in view. That's what comes before. And it would seem that interrupting meetings through questioning might always be in view in verse 35, especially if those questions were how church leaders were weighing prophets and judging prophets. So that's a particular thing that Paul is saying that the ladies shouldn't be doing. Now, to be really clear, that does not mean that a woman cannot ask a question at another time. It's good to ask questions after the sermon. I'm very thankful to men and women who come and say, can you tell me a bit more about this? I wasn't understanding what you were saying there. That brings further clarity to all of us as we seek to understand God's word. But that questioning shouldn't happen disruptively during the meeting. So it's not a call to total silence. It's a qualified silence, but it's still an important one and one that we need to understand. Because what Paul is applying, and this is the key thing here, friends, what Paul is applying is a wider principle through the scriptures that the roles of men and women in corporate gatherings should reflect God's designed differences. So the women should not take on the role of men in leading and teaching, and suitable men should step up and take responsibility to lead and to teach. And that's why, for us as a church, we only have male elders and only suitably gifted men are asked to lead and teach in corporate gatherings. Now, the calling of of women to submit to male leadership in verse 34 in the church is not oppressive patriarchy, as some would say. Paul says what it actually is, verse 34, end of the verse, is a reflection of God's law. Paul says, verse 34, as the law says, must be in submission, as the law says. So what's the law? Well, the law is creation law, this design difference between the sexes. Paul, again and again through the scriptures, grounds the different roles of men and women in design difference. He does it in 1 Corinthians 11. He does it in 1 Timothy 2. And he does it because in Genesis 1 to 3, very clearly we have taught that men and women are created equally in the image of God and so have equal value before God, but they are not the same and so have different roles. Tom Schreiner has uh, made the point that leaders in the church should be men because there are significant differences between men and women in creation. And he lists six. Adam, the first man, was created first. Eve, the first woman, was created to be man's helper. 
the instructions about not eating the forbidden, from the forbidden tree in the garden were given to Adam, a reflection of his leadership role. Adam was given the authority to name his wife Eve. The serpent, when he came to, to attack Adam and Eve there in the garden, subverted male leadership by approaching Eve first to tempt her. But then Adam was more responsible for the sin than Eve. And we see that reflected in how God approached him first after they fell, even though in the, create, in the order of what had happened, Eve had sinned first. But Adam had a responsibility there because he was called to lead. So the scriptures are abundantly clear, friends, that in creation, men and women are equally, in the image of God, have equal value and worth, but created different. And that difference, Paul here is saying, is reflected in the life of the church. So again, what are we seeing? We're seeing that we have to choose between the word of God and the wider culture. It's the same thing again and again in Corinthians. Feminism says that unless there is equal function, there isn't equal worth. And that lie is as old as the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Because what did the serpent say? The serpent's deception was to push, part of the serpent's deception was to push for an equality of function. You need to be the same as God, knowing good and evil. And godless paganism wants to destroy all the differences that God has created, and God's way is different. And we need to see, friends, that so much pain is created by believing the lies of our culture. Rosario Butterfield has just um, produced this book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. I haven't read it all, but in what I have read, in the third lie she brings out, is the lie she says that feminism is good for women. She says that at heart, feminism is not good, but rather, and her words are, is that it insults women because it denies creational difference. And the egalitarian foundations of that way of thinking deny created difference. And just as order brings freedom, so different roles brings freedom too. Because men and women are free to pursue their important but complementary roles within the church according to those design differences. So you're not being asked to do or to be something you know that is not in keeping with how you've been made. So there is freedom in this, friends. It is good. It brings freedom. To be clear, Paul is not telling women they should never say anything in a corporate gathering but that they should not speak when that would mean taking the role of the men. That's the clear teaching of these verses here. Now that's been stretching, but I trust it's been edifying. If you have questions afterwards, come and speak to me. Now I want to turn to three specific applications. Let's see if we can get through them all. First of all, the challenge for us, first application our meetings should reflect the character of God. When we meet together, let us reflect the character of God. I was struck by verse 33 this week because it's significant there that Paul is saying that how we worship 
and meet together says something about what we believe that God is like. And we should pray, and for those of us who are called to lead, we should plan that all of our meetings might communicate something about God. Both in terms of what we say, as being true and right, first part of chapter 14, but also in terms of how we conduct ourselves. Our meetings have an atmosphere. And how all of us conduct ourselves and engage contributes to that atmosphere. In verse 25 of this chapter, we looked at it last week. When someone hears God's truth, their response is, God is really among you, and God works in their hearts and brings them to faith. And the parallel in verse 33 is that we are saying something to everyone about what we believe about God in how we worship. James was helping us to see some of this this morning in the whole sermon because he was bringing out the greatness of God in that gravity of drawing near to him, but also in the second half, as we saw, the provision that we might draw near in Christ, that closeness and communion that is there, so that we are genuine in drawing near and enjoying his presence. And we need both friends, don't we? Our meetings should reflect what we believe about the character of God. Secondly, our meetings should be full of spiritual life. It's easy to point the finger at other churches that we might say perhaps feel a bit like Corinth at times. But at least the Corinthians had spiritual vigor and vibrancy. It might have been chaotic, but there was life, wasn't there? And before we point out the speck in our brother's eye, Jesus said, let's pay attention to the plank in our own. And the Lord's instructions that there might be order can be misused to squeeze all the spiritual life out of a church. We can be so focused on doing everything decently in an order that there is no spiritual vibrancy. May God save us from that danger. And perhaps it's one that we particularly need to be mindful of. I was rereading Revelation chapters 1 to 3 this week, and I was struck. The church in Ephesus, what was wrong? They'd lost their first love for the Lord. The church in Sardis, what was wrong? They were spiritually dead. The church in Laodicea, what was wrong? They were lukewarm. Friends, a danger for churches like ours is not so much that we might lack order, but that we might have no spiritual life. We want both, life and order. May God help us that we would have both. And then thirdly and finally, we close here. Our meetings as a whole should enable participation. Now, some read uh, the... Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and they would say that every meeting of the church should have the great variety of contributions that Paul describes here. I don't think it's as simple as that because there are many other passages to consider about what should happen in church. We might think of Colossians chapter 3, uh, three, yeah, 3 that calls us to sing. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 and 4 that have a strong emphasis on the preached word. 
Hebrews 10 that speaks about encouraging one another. Acts 2 we've talked about already in, in teaching and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. And the whole picture is that a healthy church has a range of things that are happening in different meetings. And so for us in our Sunday services, we're perhaps particularly focused on the Acts 2.42 and singing. But there are other settings in the life of the church where we can all pray, where we can share testimony, where we can informally teach each other as we open up the Bible all together. And it's important that we have that range of meetings that can enable participation. That's one reason why the prayer meeting is so important. Isn't it a great thing to meet together and hear everyone pray? And there are prayer meetings, aren't there, where you know, you're leading, you don't want to stop folks and say, let's move on to something else, because the Lord's working. We're just all joining together in prayer, and it's a wonderful thing. And the same is true with home groups and other Bible study settings. Those are times when we can informally teach one another. Recently, I was um, asked to lead our home group at short notice, and I I had about an hour or so uh, to get ready. I don't recommend that as a preparation model for home group leaders, but that was the situation. I explained that to the group, and I said, look, for circumstances out of our control, I'm leaving tonight. I've just had a chance to look at the passage, look at the questions a bit, but you need to help me especially this evening. And it was wonderful, because everyone did. (laughs) My contributions from everyone in the group... And it was a great evening as we were looking at God's word together. And those meetings are an important part of body life. And that means, can I make a little plea to home group study leaders that we might lead in such a way that involves the whole group. Don't see that occasion as an occasion where it's going to be another talk. It's not meant to be a monologue. It's meant to be a time of sharing. So if we've asked you to lead, please lead in that way. And then can I just make a plea? Please try to come to some of those other meetings. I know life is busy. I know it's full. But we gain so much from participating in the breadth of what we do as a church in growing together. So as we come to a close in looking through this section in 1 Corinthians... How aren't we summarize it? How aren't we apply all that we've seen in chapters 12 to 14 about our meetings together? Well, let's conduct ourselves in an orderly way, in a fitting way. That's what we've seen tonight. Let's ensure that everything is understandable. Start of chapter 14. Let's do everything for chapter 13 out of love for each other. Let's use our gifts, chapter 12, for the common good to build each other up. And most of all, most of all, as we saw at the start of chapter 12, let's exalt Jesus Christ in everything we do together. May our spirit, as we come and we share, and may all that we do proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.